I'm excited to be here with you. I'm excited to be able to share with you a message from God's word. I'm excited about what God is doing in our church and doing in our lives and excited about that. If you're here and you're a guest of someone, man, we're really glad you're here. Maybe you're here because your neighbors with somebody and they said, hey, I want you to go to church with me. Or maybe you're here because family's here and you're gathered here. And we, we, we love when families get together and go to church together. And, and I know that people are here for different reasons with different uh, minds sets and different agendas. And I'll just say from the outset, my prayer for you today is not that you would celebrate Easter, but that you would experience the power that Easter provides. It's one thing to celebrate Easter. People all over the country are celebrating Easter. It's another thing completely to experience the power that the first Easter provides. And so today my prayer is, is that you will experience Easter. Now, before we do that, I want to tell you about something that's coming up, okay? I want to give you, before we kind of dive into our Easter message, I want to give you a preview of something that's going up and ask you to help me with something. Um, if you're here today, especially if you're a guest, I want you to help me with something. Next Sunday, we're going to start a brand new series of messages, and we're calling that series of messages, Can I Ask That? It's a simple for, uh, idea behind a message series. I'm asking you what messages you would like to hear. And so, particularly if there are questions about things that we believe or things that the Bible teaches, or if you're wondering, hey, does the Bible really say this? Or why do we do this? Or why do we believe that? Or what do you think about? Does the Bible say anything about? Or I've got this situation in my life. Now, these are anonymous. You can do this without us knowing who you are or what you're asking. You're more than welcome to sign your name. But at the end of each row, there are a couple of places where it has just these small cards that say, can I ask? that at the top. And when you get that card, I'm asking you to do this for me uh, because kind of for the series to work, I have to have questions to answer. All right. So you're like, well, just don't ask anything. We won't have a sermon for four weeks. All right. But uh, I need questions from you. And so if you would fill that out before you leave today, and I'll remind you at the end of the service. And then as you walk out today, straight back behind me is a table where that looks like a little um, container with a mail slot on it, a little box back there. If you would put it in there, we got several in the first service. I would really, really appreciate it. So it's Easter. Let me ask you a quick question. What's your favorite Easter tradition? Now we're going to, we're going to disqualify something from the beginning, not because it's not a good tradition, but because we don't want you to have to feel like you have to say this. We know that everybody's favorite Easter tradition is attending First Baptist Church Goodlettsville and worshiping here. All right. So you don't have to say that out loud. So what's, what, what Easter tradition do you love? And it doesn't have to be super spiritual. All right. What's Easter tradition do you love? Dinner, all right, food, all right. So what, what food is on your Easter menu that you love? What's, what's the food that you look forward to? Some of you like in, well, it depends on how long I go, right? Like 45 minutes or so, right? What, what's on that menu that you're looking forward to today? Mac and cheese. It's an exotic Easter food. It's amazing, all right? Ham, all right, well, you got... Jelly beans for dinner. I'm sure Penny's proud of you for that answer, right? 
All right. So and we started a tradition a, a year or so ago at my house. We do a standing rib roast for Easter. And uh, mine is in the oven as we speak. And so here's the thing that I can assure you. We won't go real long today. All right. Because I'm already thinking about that. It's already there. All right. What other what other Easter traditions do you like? Somebody said Easter baskets. I heard those. So you like getting kids like getting stuff in their Easter baskets. All right. That was like three things I couldn't hear, all right? What? Easter egg hunt. Uh, you, Jackson, you look like you're really pumped about that. Are uh, you, you hiding the eggs or hunting the eggs now? Both. <laughs> that's called cheating, is what that's called. When you hide the eggs and then hunt them, that's called cheating, all right? Now, what about Easter candy? What's your favorite Easter specialty candy? Somebody said Twix. Twix is not Easter Marshmallow eggs, all right? We got any we got any peep fans in the house and he Yeah, we'll be praying for you, all right? What about the Cadbury egg? Anybody ever have oh yeah, got some Cadbury egg fans? All right, and then the greatest I agree with Justin about this, the best Easter candy, although it's kind of year round now, but it used to be just at Easter, is the Starburst jelly beans, all right? They are top notch. I see I hear those claps, all right? That's the biggest response I've gotten all day. That's awesome, all right? Well, you know, another one that, that we have is uh, new clothes, right? How many people here are wearing something new today for Easter? I see those hands, all right? All right, how many of you bought something for your family new for Easter, all right? So you, you buy new clothes. So I'm wearing a new tie today. I know that you were impressed by that. My daughter... Um, Maddie picked this out for me. I uh, was looking at ties and I said, what if I go with a bow tie this year? She said, dad, bow ties make you look like a nerd. I said, okay. I think I was just me. I see some bow ties out there. Sorry, Daniel. It was just me. He was talking to not, uh, not anybody else. Uh, so <laughs> that's the actual quote from Maddie. All right. And so, uh, when I was growing up though, like new Easter, it doesn't seem like new Easter clothes are as big of a deal as it was when I was growing up. So when I was growing up in Dyersburg, northwest Tennessee, small town, there was a boutique on the square for children's clothing that we only visited once a year, usually two weeks before Easter, because we had to get our Easter outfit, something that was special for Easter. One year in particular, I remember I was a third grader, um, Mom had gone, uh, knocked it out of the park with this Easter outfit, she thought. It was, um, it, it was a, a bright pastel shirt with a clip-on tie that matched, the sport coat that goes with it, and the piece de resistance, the white dress pants. <laughs> Woo! Right? It looks... And I, for a third grader with uh, ridiculous looking hair and uh, bean pole thin, looked sharp, all right? And so we wore that Easter Sunday. I remember specifically going to Sunday school. My Sunday school teachers were great people. They were Miss Dorothy Gaines and Mr. Cook. I never knew Mr. Cook's first name, but it was Mr. Cook and Miss Gaines. And they, they wanted to make Easter special for us. I remember, I remember this day. You know how some days you just remember? And so they, they gave us... Um, a Bible, all of us, a Bible. Now, it wasn't like the Bibles we give first graders here. It was the Gideon Bible, right? Budgets were much smaller at churches back then. So we got 
the Gideon Bible. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? The little pocket Bible. And so that was really cool. I remember going to worship that day. Um, I had just become a Christian. I had just been baptized. It was my first Easter uh, as a Christian. It was a really exciting time, really um, just a cool experience for me. Went to Granny Nell's, had a great uh, Easter dinner. She could really cook. Had a, all my family from Dyersburg around. I had a great afternoon. And about 7.30 that night, I heard my mother scream. And then I heard, Lyle Patrick Larson. Now, it wasn't good because she said my full name. It was worse because she paused in between each name. And so I come in, and she is holding my white dress pants. I'd taken my Gideon Bible that day, and I had stuck it in my pocket. And it was red. My white dress pants now had large red spots all over them. And I remember is the phrase that she said as she held up my what looked like pants I had bled all over. Is she said, these are ruined. And my mom and dad were factory workers that did not visit children's boutiques. And I thought at that time, I probably need to think about the response that I was going to give back to my mom. Because I don't think I've ever told anybody else this until I told first service this. So you're the second group. I didn't like the pants to start with. So I didn't think that that moment I should have said, well, I don't have to wear those things again. Like that was not appropriate at that moment. Ruined. Unwearable. Unusable. By the way, my friend Stephen, some of you have heard me talk about Stephen, he had yellow pants that day. Same thing. Red Gideon Bible, yellow pants. His mom just bleached his. Mom couldn't do that to mine for some reason. Ruined. It's an interesting word. I've been thinking about that word this week. And you think, well, that's a happy thing to think about on Easter Holy Week. It's a word that means completely destroyed or reduced To a state of decay, collapse, and disintegration. Unable to be used anymore. Completely ruined. I read this week about a cathedral in Scotland. The St. Andrew's Cathedral. I got a picture of it for you. Here's the interesting thing about this cathedral. It was built, originally started in 1158. Now, we get real excited about buildings like 100 years old here. This building was built in 1158. It took over 100 years to build it because in 1272, as they were building it, right as they were getting ready to complete it, a storm came in and blew the West End down. So they had to rebuild it and they dedicated it in 1318. So it took them 150 years to get it ready And then 60 years later, a fire destroyed the entire building. They rebuilt it in 1440 and 100 years later, it was in the midst of a battle and it was robbed and everything's taken out of it. And they decided to give up on it completely and they just abandoned it. And since 1561, it's not been used. 1561, it's not been used. It lies in ruins. Now, one of the definitions of ruin is something reduced to a state of decay, collapse, or disintegration. But what's interesting is the other definition of ruin that I found this week is the disastrous disintegration of someone's life. 
And here's the thing. I think that picture of that chapel shows a picture of what a lot of lives are really like. It looks like they're in ruins. And maybe not on the outside, maybe not where people see, but on the inside where people live, where people think, where people are reminded again and again of their lives. They feel like that whole process of the cathedral. They build it up and then something tears it down again. A storm comes along and tears down what they've built. A fire comes and tears down what they've built. So they try hard. And then again, it's ruined. They try to do their finances correctly and then something hits and they're ruined. They try to make good choices in their life. They try to do the right thing. They try to be a good husband. They try to be the right guy at work. They try to be a good father. They try to be a good person, a good friend, a good son, a good daughter. Then they make foolish choices that hurt that. The students, they think, man, this is the semester. I'm going to make good grades. And then they're like, well, it's too late now. Today, what I want to talk about is why Easter is so important, especially for people who feel like your life is ruined or that you've tried and it's just not going to get back on track. You worked hard and that sin just will not go away. You keep thinking you're done with it and it creeps back in and you think I'm ruined. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 14 if you have one. If you don't have a Bible, there's one right in front of you. Um, it'll be from the same version that I'll be reading. Also, the, most of these uh, passages will be on the screen. And we're going to look at a couple of places in Mark today. We're going to start in Mark chapter 14. Mark is the shortest of the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. The shortest of the biographies we have in the Bible about Jesus. And in Mark chapter 14, we're towards the end. Mark um, has, ends in chapter 16, and we'll get there in a few minutes. And so we're almost at the end of Mark. And at the end of Mark, as this is kind of coming to a close, these are in the last few hours of the life of Jesus before he's crucified. And there's some important events that happen in the midst of that. So in Mark chapter 14, we're actually going to be in verse 66. Mark chapter 14 Verse 66, and it starts and says, while Peter was in the courtyard below. Now, that's important for a couple of reasons that it signals out Peter there in this particular book. And you have to keep in mind when you're reading Mark. The first is this. When we think about the four Gospels that we have, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. There's no gospel of Peter, right? There's no gospel that Peter's name is on. You have Matthew, the tax collector. Mark, Luke, the doctor who traveled the world with Paul and collected all the information to be able to tell people about Jesus. And then you have John, the beloved disciple, the one that was part of Jesus inner circle. There's no Peter gospel, but Mark was a close associate of Peter. And most scholars believe, including myself, that Mark is telling for the most part, Peter's account of what happened with Jesus. And so if you're in a story where Peter is telling about what happened to Peter, it's probably a pretty important thing to think about the fact that this is coming straight from him. And so when Peter... Now, another reason that it's important that it's Peter is because this is not any ordinary follower of Jesus. By the time Jesus was crucified, by the week he comes to be crucified, there he has thousands of believers, thousands of followers that are listening to him, watching him, following him. But Peter's not an ordinary one of those people. Peter's been with him from the very beginning. In fact, if you've been around our church for the last few weeks, we've been doing a series called 40 leading up to today. The 40 days leading up to today. 
And in that series, we've talked about some of the miracles and callings and teachings of Jesus. And Peter is in all of them. Peter was there when that first calling of the disciples, when Jesus said, toss your net over the side of the boat and pull it in. Then when he pulls it in, Peter leaves his entire family, his job, everything about he knows to follow Jesus. Peter was there where he fed 5,000 people with just a little bit of bread and fish. Not only was Peter there when he fed the 5,000, Peter was one of the guys handing the food out that the baskets that never ended. Peter was there when Jesus healed the paralyzed man. Peter was there when Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. Peter was there when Jesus gave sight to the blind. Peter was there when Jesus called demons out of people and rescued them. Peter was there every moment that Jesus taught his life-altering, life-changing behavior. And Peter wasn't just there. He was intimately involved he was there when Jesus was transfigured on a mountain. Peter was there when Jesus performed miracle after miracle and teaching after teaching. Peter was there. And in the midst of all of that, Peter firmly believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah of God that they had waited on as a nation for hundreds of years. He firmly believed from that moment when he put his net over the side of the boat and pulled in the holes of fish. He believed that Jesus was the chosen one, the Messiah. He believed that his grandfather had told him about the one that was to come. That his grandfather's grandfather had told his grandfather about the one that was to come. For generation upon generation, they had promised that one that was to come. And the moment he pulled those fish in, he looked at his dad and said, that's it. And I'm following him. And he had given him his life for three full years. He didn't just sort of believed. He completely believed. When Jesus asked his disciples, who are people saying that I am? This was at a pivotal turning point of his ministry. The other disciples say, well, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, some say. And then he looks at him and says, who do you say that I am? Peter is the one that boldly steps forward and correctly says, you are the Christ, the son of God. Peter was the forefront vocal leader, the one that said to Jesus, if they take you away, I won't let them. I would die for you. Peter is the one that when they come to arrest Jesus and he kisses him on the cheek, Judas kisses him on the cheek and betrays him to the authorities, that when they come to get him, Peter was the manly man that pulled out his sword and cut off the ear of one of the guards and says, you're not going to take my Lord. I mean, Peter believed when Peter, this is after Jesus has been arrested. This is as Peter's trying to follow to see what's going to happen to the one he believes is the Messiah. When Peter was in the courtyard below, one of the high priest maidservants came. When she saw Peter warming herself, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. Now, if you don't know the story or if you didn't know the story, most of us in this room know this story. But if you didn't, you would expect after what's happened with Peter throughout the story of Jesus, what's happened with Peter throughout the Gospels, you would expect Peter to say, you're right. I know him. 
That's the Messiah. That's the Christ. What are you doing to him? It's unjust. It's unfair. But most of you know the story. That's not what happens, is it? He denied it. I don't, I don't even know or understand what you're talking about. What do you mean? I don't, I, don't, I don't even understand what you're talking about. Then he went out to the entryway and a rooster crowed. Now that's important, right? Because Jesus had told him at the Lord's Supper, when the last supper, when he had said to Jesus, Jesus said, hey, listen, I'm going to die. And Peter's like, I'm not going to let him do it. I'll die for you. And Jesus says, before the rooster crows, before morning, you're going to deny me three times. Before he crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. So he denies the rooster. When the maidservant saw him again, she began to tell those things. That man's one of them. But again, he denied it. That's twice. Goes on. After a little while, those standing there said to Peter again, you certainly are one of them since you're also a Galilean. Now, this is important because there's nothing. He wasn't wearing a Galilee high school t-shirt. Right? So how did they know he was a Galilean? Well, most people think it's because of the way he talked. Galileans had a certain accent. All right. They were considered country. They were the people that when they spoke, people automatically deducted about 30 points from their IQ. Anybody here ever experienced that? Can I get an amen from the southerners in the house? All right. Appreciate y'all. So they say, listen, this is the Galilean. He's talking like a Galilean. The Galileans are Jesus people. This is the Jesus person. I just think it's interesting, by the way, that Jesus had made such an impact. They considered if you were from Galilee, you were with Jesus. Then he, Peter, leader of the apostles, what we consider to be a stalwart of the church, the man that made the declaration that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the one that cut off the ear of the guard, then he, Peter, started to curse. I don't know what words he said. They didn't teach us that in biblical Greek. And swear, and swear there doesn't mean more cursing. That means he is saying, I put my life upon it. He started to curse and to swear an oath. I don't know this man you're talking about. Now, let's just for a moment, okay, before we move to the next part, let's just for a moment, take Jesus, Peter, out of this whole thing. Take the moment we're in. Take the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, is there about to be crucified and Peter has denied knowing him. This just take this as two good friends. Close friends. If Jesus were to have to list his best friends on earth or how they were perceived to be, we know that scripture teaches us that there were three of them that were closer than everybody else. As far as in those intimate moments when it was just Jesus and three, it was these three. And Peter was one of those three. So these are three of the people. He is one of the three people closest to Jesus on the face of the earth. And at the moment that Jesus needed him most, the moment that Jesus was most in danger, Peter denies knowing him. Now imagine if you had your best friend at your greatest moment of need ignore you and act like they don't even know you. Take the grand scale out of it and think about it on a human level. Just a friendship. I don't know who you're even talking about. He didn't just deny that he had some association with Jesus. He denied knowing who the man was or what it's even about. Immediately, a rooster crowed a second time. And another gospel tells us that Jesus and him see each other. And Peter remembered when Jesus had spoken the word to him 
before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he, Peter, broke down and wept. Those two words there, broke down, literally means. In fact, some of you in your translation of the Bible, if you're not having the same one that I have, it'll say something like, and he began to wet. That's because they, they, for a long time they didn't quite understand that word. But the word there means to suddenly have a weight put on you that you cannot bear. To suddenly have something placed on you that you can no longer hold. And it says that he broke down. He was literally felt he had a weight put on him that he could not bear. And then the word wept there. Now, I don't usually bring out actual Greek uh, dictionary words, but it says the word wept means, I love this, it says the word there means ball. B-A-W-L. That's a good old Galilean southern word right there. And you know the difference between crying and bawling. It says that Peter, when he heard the rooster crow, broke down under the weight of what had just happened and bawled. Again, who wrote the book of Mark? Mark. Whose story is it probably in the book of Mark? Peter. Peter is telling you that at that moment, he was ruined. And when you go from that moment, from that moment, he would watch his friend, his mentor, his guide, his rabbi, his Messiah go to the cross. I want you to think for a moment how absolutely horrifying those next 36 hours were for him. He had betrayed his friend. He had left him. He had done things that he said he would never do. He had forsaken his Messiah. His friend. His teacher. The man who had loved him more than anybody had ever loved him. The man that had done more for him than anybody had ever done. The man who had cared for him like nobody had ever cared. And he turned his back on him and denied him. And then was not even present when they killed him. And you add that to the fact that he felt so foolish because he had invested his life in somebody that turned out not to be who he thought he was. And then fast forward about seven weeks. And the same Peter in seven weeks will go from this man who is cowering, denying, even knowing Jesus to in Acts chapter four, when he is standing before the ruling authorities of Jerusalem and they say to him, do not tell anybody about Jesus again. He says, I cannot determine what you do for me, but I must not stop talking about what I have seen and heard. And you ask the question, what happened from the cowering man by the fire who could not even admit that he knew Jesus to the man who stood up in the face of certain death and said, you do what you got to do. I can't stop denying or talking about Jesus. But what happened is Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16 is the story of the resurrection and it's where we finish our message today. We know that Jesus, after this incident where Peter denies him, he is crucified. It is a horrible death. He died for our sins on the cross. He pays the penalty for our sins on the cross. And in chapter 16, it tells us that when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, 
Mary, the mother of James and Siloam, bought spices. I always think that's interesting. We kind of wash over that, don't think much about it. But the truth is, Jesus' death was so surprising, so shocking, so instant, so sudden, they didn't even have what they needed, and they had to wait till the Sabbath was over to buy what they needed to put on the body. So that they could go and anoint him. Verse 2. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. I love the detail that we get in this particular passage. Verse 3, they were saying to one another, what are we going to do about that stone? We can't roll it away. Now, I want you to imagine, all right, we like to sanitize things and have them actually say what's said here and that only. You know that the whole way to the tomb, the only thing they said was not, what are we going to do with the stone? They had an extended conversation about it. How do I know that? Because it's three women trying to figure out an issue. <laughs> Amen? So they're not just like, I wonder what we're going to do with the tomb. What are we going to do with the stone? Like, they're trying to figure it out. They're trying to come up with plans. They're trying to decide on a course of action. And it says that when they got to the tomb, they noticed that the stone, which was very large had been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. As you would be too. If you walk into somebody's tomb and there's a live person that's not supposed to be there sitting there, you're going to be a little alarmed. Verse 6. Don't be alarmed. He told them, And then some of the greatest words in the history of the universe. Perhaps the greatest words in the history of the universe. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. Well, y'all were better at that than the first service. They need to let that go. That's a good place, right? Even if you're not an amen and Baptist, that's a good place, right? In fact, we're going to do it again, but this time, don't just amen, all right? We're going to celebrate. So I want you to celebrate. You were looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. That sounded like your team hit a jump shot in the third quarter. That wasn't like a celebration. That's all right, we'll move on. It was better. He is not here. See the place where they put him. So I want you to get the scene, all right? These women walk in. They're going to anoint the body of their teacher. And I just want to say, I, a couple of things about this passage with the women. First of all, it makes it more believable that Jesus rose from the dead, that women were the first one to see him, because women weren't trusted in that day and age to give testimony that they were unseen. And if you were trying to sanitize this story, you would say that somebody else saw Jesus or saw that he wasn't there first. The second thing is, these three women were the only ones of Jesus' followers brave enough to do anything on that day. Everybody else was hiding. They get there. What are we going to do with the stone? I don't know. What are you going to do? What do you think, Mary? Well, I don't know. Salome, woman. You, I can't roll it away. Well, you can't either. What are we going to do? Stones rolled away. They walk in. Guy's sitting there on the bench, legs crossed. Like, what are y'all up to? Like, I'm, y'all looking for Jesus? He ain't here. He's gone. 
He told you he would be. Just think of the emotion in that moment. And then, this is good, this is good. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. Go, tell his disciples and Peter. Now remind ourselves real quickly again, I know we've asked this a couple times, we have to keep reminding ourselves, who wrote the book of Mark? Mark. Whose story is it more likely in the book of Mark? Peter. He is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. He told you he's going to do it. Y'all didn't believe him, but he told you he's there. He's coming to meet you. And Peter. What happened? Jesus rose from the grave. And Peter saw it. And Peter knew it. And it wasn't just that Peter saw it and knew it. He makes the point of saying that when the Jesus came back from the grave, he personalized his resurrection for Peter. Now, I think part of the reason Peter wanted it in there that way. And I've read other people, so this isn't just my idea. There are other people that believe this too. So I'm going to tell you, I think this is the reason. It's because he intended for us to understand that the resurrection story is not some grand story in the sky. It is a story for you. And what you can do in that passage of scripture is go and tell the disciples and and put your name there. And Lyle. And Steve. And Glenn. And Katie. And Allie. Put your name there because the point of the resurrection is that Jesus rose from the grave for you and me and the world. But don't get so caught up in the bigness of it that you miss the intimacy of what happened here because he rose for Peter. The ruined man who had denied him three times, he rose for him. And so if you think you have done anything to get yourself too far gone from God, that your life is ruined, you are absolutely wrong. Because he died and rose for you. And all you got to do is believe. Here's the thing. There are a lot of you in this room that are not living in the power of the resurrection that came from that moment. There are a lot of you living in Friday, the forgiveness of your sins. But Jesus didn't come just to forgive your sins. Oh, that's a major part of what he did. And we rightly focus a lot of our attention on that. But he came not only to forgive you of your sins, but to give you the power to live life like nobody else can experience. He gave you the ability to live a life that is unbelievable compared to the rest of the world. Not necessarily easier, not worry-free, but more fulfilling, more important, with more purpose. And there are too many of you in this room that are trying to live just off of the forgiveness of your sins. And you aren't living in the power of the resurrection. You are giving your life to other things, trying to fill that void that you have for the purpose in your life, for the power in your life. And it's not going to provide it. What provides it is the power of the resurrection. Peter wasn't going to be restored outside of the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So three words to you to get doing in your life. First of all, stop dying. We're all dying. 
physically. Amen. We're getting older. I was having a conversation with Jeff earlier today. He was talking about how bad his knees felt after doing seesaw with Lincoln for 20 minutes, right? I said, imagine having a 15-year-old son that decides he wants to vault you into the air off the seesaw, which happened to me this week with Eli. He had already been playing seesaw with his other three siblings on the other side. That was not good enough for him. He needed a larger challenge, larger both figuratively and weight-wise, all right? Thought I about left my knees on the ground one time when he vaulted up. Scripture talks about wasting away physically and being completely renewed day by day spiritually. And the thing about the resurrection is it reverses death. C.S. Lewis said in the Chronicle of Narnia that Easter is death working backwards. And Jesus came not just to save us from our sins, but to keep us from dying spiritually. And I love this. Revelation 1 tells us that Jesus is the one that is the first and last, the living one. That he was dead, but he's alive forever. And he holds the keys of death and Hades. That what happened in his death and his resurrection is he took the keys from death and Hades from Satan. Satan doesn't even have keys to his own place. Because Jesus took them. He's the one that controls it. Stop dying. Accept the life that comes through Jesus Christ. Secondly, start rebuilding. What I mean by that is, even after Jesus rose from the grave, he took his disciples and spent 40 days with them, getting them ready for the next life, getting them ready for what's going to happen after he ascended, getting them ready for their ministry. And if you're going to live the life that God intends for you to live, you're going to have to put yourself in a place where you are rebuilding your life around his purpose, around his goal. And so I'm going to ask you to do this. If you're a guest with us or if you're here and you're a member of our church and you come on occasion or pretty regularly, I'm going to ask you to give us a year of truly investing your life. Not just coming, not just showing up, but investing your life. Maybe you're somebody that comes occasionally. I'm going to ask you to give us a year. See. God didn't radically change you as you give yourself to small groups, to Sunday school, to being in a group of people studying the Bible together, to reading God's word, to coming to church on a regular basis, to putting yourself in service opportunities. Give us a year and see if God doesn't change your life. Now, I'm not asking you to come in and be like the God, like, I'm going to show you, preacher, that ain't going to happen. I mean, truly investing your life. Isn't it worth, whether or not Jesus rose from the grave, whether or not he can give you the best life for eternity, isn't it worth a year of your time to figure that out? And then the last thing is start living. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And most of us in this room are not truly living. Come and accept what he's done for you. And truly live. We're going to sing a song in just a minute. And I love the bridge of this song. Because it shows us that the resurrection was personal for us. It's our and Peter moment. And it says, by your spirit, I will rise from the ashes of defeat. The resurrected king is resurrecting me. In your name, I come alive to declare your victory. The resurrected king is resurrecting me. If you're here today and maybe you've asked God for the forgiveness of your sins, or maybe you've never done that. But you've never stepped over into that place where you are living completely, fully devoted to God. Today is the day. There's no better day. Why don't you give your life to him? Let's pray together.